Inventions. 20th century brought a lot of remarkable inventions in technology. Things like the automobile, the space shuttle, and for better or for worse, the internet. But there were some other intervention, inventions that came along in the 20th century that were just plain dumb. Uh, maybe that's kind of unkind. Let's, let's say they might have been a good idea at the time. Take, for example, 1950. Someone came out with a thing called the Venetian blind sunglasses. That's exactly what they are. They had Venetian little blinds across it. You could open or close them depending on how you wanted them. Nothing like having a pair of glasses that makes the user unable to see. Okay. 1953 brought along the curved barrel machine gun. That's where it's an M3 machine gun, curved barrel for shooting around corners. Nothing like being able to shoot at something you can't see around the corner. 1961 brought a really neat invention from Goodyear for cars called illuminated tires. They were made from a single piece of synthetic rubber lit by bright bulbs on the inside of the rim. Great for if you wanted to read your map at night outside your car while kneeling on the ground. Not too bad. Cigarettes seem to have brought along several special inventions. 1955, someone came up with a holder that allowed you to smoke an entire pack of cigarettes at the same time. Same year, they also brought about an invention that allowed you and your sweetie to share the same cigarette. And then the year before that, 1954, Robert Stern, president of Zeus Corporation, came up with what was called the rainy day cigarette. Had a little umbrella on the holder set out over the lid part of the cigarette that prevented it from getting wet while it was raining so it wouldn't get put out. Turns out that we know now that cigarettes themselves were a bad invention altogether. 1964, Klaus Schloss of Vienna invented a robot that would pick up the phone for you, that would answer the phone for you. Of course, the robot wouldn't speak. All it would do was pick up the phone. It freed you from the burden of lifting that heavy receiver off of the phone. You know, we needed something like that, right? 1968, L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard's a great science fiction writer. I love his books. I've got some of my library. i got a couple of them that I read over and over and over because I love his writings. Uh, unfortunately, he's also the inventor of the Church of Scientology. Uh, but he also came up with this thing that you see here. It's called the Hubbard Electrometer. He created it to figure out if tomatoes experience pain. And it led him to determine that when you slice a tomato, it screams. Useful and creepy bit of information right there that we got from L. Ron Hubbard. And then, of course, my favorite, 1963, is the cat mew machine. What this is is a mechanical cat head that meowed 10 times a minute with its eyes lighting up each time. It was run by a little two-watt motor, and it was a device for scaring cats and my, uh, rats and mice away. Of course, if you had a cat that that meowed that often, six times a minute, I don't think that you would be keeping the cat. 
things that seemed like a good idea at the time. What about the golden calf? God had commissioned Moses to lead his people out of the land of Egypt. God's presence had been with them on the journey, had a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Did the Israelites think this was enough? No. The first time Moses was out of the camp to meet God on the mountain, the first time, the people turn to Moses' brother Aaron and say, Come make gods for us. Come make gods for us. At least that's how the, the Revised Standard and English Standard Version translate it. Now, the Hebrew word can also be translated as simply God or gods. It could be singular or plural, depending on how the, the translator wrote it. But the thing that really ought to catch your attention here. It's not whether it's God or God's, but it should be make. Should be the word make. This tells us that the Israelites were looking for an invented God. And Aaron inexplicably goes along with this without one single word of protest. They say, come make God's force. Aaron says, okay, not a problem. Let's do it. He collects all the gold jewelry from the people. He melts it down and fashions for them this golden calf. These people see the calf and proclaim, These are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Talk about a dumb invention. If you're going to create an image of the God who just had imposed the ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt and parted the Red Sea so that you could escape, would you choose the image of a baby cow? He did all those powerful things and they chose the image of a baby cow. Now, just a few days prior to this, Moses had given the people the Ten Commandments. And two of those commandments say what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and you shall not have any graven image. And just days afterwards, what do they do? Why don't you make some gods for us? God had forbidden the making of graven image, but even absent that directive, even if that directive wasn't there, why insult God by constructing a statue of a bovine creature as representative of the image divine? And a baby wanted that. Granted, in Egyptian culture, which the Israelites would have been familiar with. A young bull was common symbol of deity, implying strength and leadership and fertility. (coughs) But after all the Israelites had witnessed of Yahweh's abilities, even an older, vigorous bull would have been grossly inadequate to represent 
Jehovah God. Just wouldn't have done him justice. Now, some commentators are seeking to give Aaron a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, saying it's plausible that it was the, this calf was not designed to be the image of God, but that this calf was designed to have God ride upon the calf. Showing dominance. It's also possible that some say that it's not that the calf was God, but that Yahweh was conceived as able to control the calf. Again, showing dominance and power. But when the people say, these are your gods, it's hard to cut Aaron any slack. It's hard to cut the people any slack. They didn't see this as something God was riding on. They didn't see this as something that God was controlling. They saw this little calf as God. That's all it was. These people made a huge mistake. And once Aaron presented the people with the calf, they proceeded to worship the calf with the prescribed rites and rituals that Aaron had just given the people for use with Yahweh, with God. At least that's how they started in the beginning. They offered burnt offering sacrifices. They offered well-being offerings. All that were supposed to be specifically for Jehovah God. But eventually with the calf and the not-real-God at the center of their worship, everything kind of went off the rails eventually. In verse 6, it says that following the sacrifices, the people sat down to eat and drink and then rose up to play. Some of your translations may say they rose up to revel. Now, this word play or revel can mean very something very innocent as people engaging and things like unoffensive like dancing. But in this context, it refers more likely to some very unholy goings on. In fact, when Moses returns to the camp a little bit later, he finds the people running wild. Again, some of your translations may say that they had broken loose, that they were unrestrained, that they were out of control. This isn't something simply inoffensive like dancing. They were going crazy. Doing things that they had no right to doing. They were profaning the worship of God. But what else is new? We human beings have been inventing our own God for as long as we've been around. And then tailoring our worship to match that invention, haven't we? Have you ever said or heard someone say something like this? Well, if God is a God of love, surely He wants me to be happy and won't condemn me for blank. Fill in that blank, usually with something self-centered that God's not probably going to condone. But if God really loves me, and God really wants me to be happy, surely He's not going to condemn me for doing whatever. That blank, what we're doing when we fill in that blank, 
we are inventing our own God. A God that's very permissive. A God of our own creation. And we're quite willing to worship that God. But since it's a God that we set up on our own, and we have our own conditions, we shouldn't be surprised that we too eventually go off rails on when it comes down how to live. But not every God we invent is overly permissive. Sometimes we end up inventing a God who's overly judgmental. You know, a cosmic scorekeeper. Somebody who's sitting up here just waiting for me to mess up. So I'm going to get another negative mark on my card. He's just looking for me to do something wrong so he can say, gotcha. Or we could be inventing one who is so distant from us that he doesn't care about us individually. He may see us as a group, but as far as Mark is concerned, as an individual, doesn't care. Or we could be inventing one whose main expectation is just that we, we just need to be nice to each other and get along. And I think that's kind of where our society is going right now. We just need to be nice and accepting and let everybody do what they want to and live what they want to and marry who they want to and love who they want to. And let's just get along. The Bible presents several facets of who God is. But if we act as if there's only one facet of God, folks, we are inventing a God of our own. You know, we have a God who is a God of justice. We've got a God who is a God of love, mercy, grace. We could go on and on, right? But if we only focus on one aspect of God, we're inventing a God of our own. The God of the Bible is a multiplicity. But this story of the golden calf gives us a picture of God that we should not miss. After the peace of people of Israel have worshipped the calf, God, of course, is aware of it. And he tells Moses to go down the mountain and take care of it, deal with it. And I want you to look at the language that God uses with Moses. It's kind of like the language that sometimes our wives use to us husbands when we come home after a day's work and the kid's done something wrong. You know it's wrong when you get in the house and say, guess what your son did today? Guess what your child did today? Instead of, hey, you know what Taylor did today? You know what Emily did today? You know what our child did today? Guess what your son did today? Look at what God is saying. Your people, he's saying to Moses, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They've been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. He's disowning the people. God's wrath is so hot that He's going to consume them and start over. And He doesn't want to own them. He says, Moses, these are your people. They messed up. And now I'm done with them. I'm done. Now as good as an idea this might have been, Moses had a different idea. He implores God for the people. 
and uses some language that reconnects God to the people. He turns it around. And he says, O Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? He reminds God of God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to their descendants. Those people camped at the foot of the mountain. Those people that had made a God and rose up to play. In the end, God does relent. And He doesn't bring down His wrath on the people. But Moses does have to head down the mountain and clean things up. How does this exchange between God and Moses help us to understand God a little bit more? You know, Moses is one of the few people who was able to meet God on the level that he did. There were several times when Moses went to God and talked to God in ways that you and I don't even, sometimes don't even dare think about talking to God. In ways that we can't dream of talking to God. He gets in there and he recounts what God has done. And while God's first inclination was to punish, he ends up not sending his wrath down upon the people because of his conversation with Moses. This startling behavior on God's part is not a function of divine weakness. It's not that God was all of a sudden just all fired up and hot and Moses decided that he would calm him down and change his mind. This change on God's part is not weakness, but it's grace. And this is what grace is. In short, God's grace wins out over God's justifiable anger. That's what, that's, what God, that's what happened here. And that's part of a biblical function. And thank the Lord that it's not. Because judgment is never God's final word. Amen to that? Anybody glad that judgment is God, not God's final word? If judgment was God's final word, why are we sitting here? If judgment was it, why do we even bother going to church? Why do we even bother listening to me, studying the Bible? God's judgment is never His final word. So in our quest to know God, it's important to view grace as one of His primary characteristics. It's not His only characteristic, but it is one of His primary ones. Now, this is not to suggest that there were no consequences for Israel's sin, because there were consequences, weren't there? You read later on in the chapter, and you see some very harsh things that Moses did to the people in order to, for those who wouldn't repent. First thing he did, 
was he chopped up that golden calf, he threw it in the water and made the people drink it. Made everybody sick. Then he had some of the people put to death. Told the faithful few, grab your swords, go through the camp and just start killing people. Still, God stays his hand and by his grace, the people of Israel will eventually, some 40 years later, despite their disbelief, despite their distrust, despite their grumbling and complaining, they will eventually stand at the border of the promised land. They will cross the Jordan River and they will have their promise fulfilled that began all the way back with Father Abraham. Grace. Grace rightly defined is unmerited favor. It's the startling act of God working on behalf of everyone who violates His covenant and substitutes gods of their own making for the one true God. Grace can be best understood in contrast to mercy, which is another divine attribute of God. Mercy is God's withholding punishment that we deserve. And that's what we're going to get when we get to heaven and stand before the judgment seat. Anybody, who wants, you want judgment or you want mercy? You want mercy, don't you? If we get judgment, we all know where we're going, don't we? Mercy is the withholding of a punishment that we deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is God's giving us blessings that we don't deserve. Doing great things for us that we don't deserve. How important is it that when we fail to live up to our promises to God, that He still lives up to the promises that He's made to us? I am so thankful that God is a faithful God who always, always, always keeps His promises. You can't say that about us, can you? Because we've all broken a promise at one time or another, haven't we? God will never do that. Never has, never will. Yes, there's judgment. Yes, there is accountability. But there's also grace. And any image of God that leaves out grace is simply a calf of gold. It's God of our own making. There's a writer by the name of Kathleen Norris. And she writes about being at an airport terminal. And one day, she noticed a young couple with a baby, real small, real small baby. The baby was staring at other people. And as soon as the baby recognized another human face, whether it was an old face or a young face, whether it was a pretty face or an ugly face, whether it was a tired face or a happy face or a bored face or a worried-looking face, this baby would respond with absolute delight would respond with absolute pure joy. 
And Norris goes on to write, she says, It was beautiful to see. Our drab departure gate had become the gate of heaven. And as I watched that baby with any adult who would allow it, I realized that this is how God looks at us. Staring into our faces in order to be delighted. To see the creature he made and call good along with the rest of creation. And as Psalm 139 puts it, darkness is as nothing to God who can look right through whatever evil we've done in our lives to the creature made in the divine image. Possibly only God and well-loved infants can see this way. Folks, God can look right through all of our guilt trips. He can look right through all of our failures. He can look right through all of our agonies, all of our phoniness, all our invented deities, all of our sins, and see somebody He loves. God loves everybody. That's why He sent Jesus. And that's what that one verse says, for God so loved the whole world. So God loves everybody. Call that divine ability the grace of God. And that grace is here for everyone right now. That grace is here presented to you. If you've never experienced God's grace, then you are missing out on something that is, sometimes it's beyond even my ability to express. But God's grace is still there. All of us have sinned, right? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether we believe it or not, that's the case. From the first time that we sinned, it doesn't matter what it was, we've fallen short of the glory of God. Enter the grace of God, which makes up that distance. If you're a sinner tonight and have not experienced the grace of God, it is available tonight. All you have to do is come and see one of our elders and be baptized to have your sins taken away. And folks, that is God's grace. That's what baptism is all about. That's what forgiveness is. It's the grace of God. And folks, that's a really good idea. And that's one that's going to last for a lifetime. And if you need God's grace today, we encourage you to come while we stand and sing.